0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and anxiety spectrum disorders. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician and um, I'm a specialist in treating OCD and anxiety and anxiety spectrum disorders to no surprise. Oh, thank you everybody for joining me for this episode. Um, For all of you new listeners, this is a question and answer based podcast. If you have a question about OCD or anxiety and the anxiety spectrum, stuff can include social anxiety, specific phobia, Uh, it can be hypochondria, it can be anything that we're afraid of, anything that you're afraid of. Um, If you have a question about how to treat it, overcome it, fight it, beat it, punch it in its stupid face, um, you can shoot me an email and you can message me over at fearcastpodcast.com. Send me that question. I will read it. I will consider it and I will likely put it up on an episode. And um, today is no different. I'm going to be answering three questions from you, the listeners. So first off, everybody, thank you so much for listening. I know I say this every now and again but I just can't say it enough. It has been a delight and a surprise that uh, people keep listening to this. I keep getting more and more questions and I keep getting uh, more and more listeners. This is fantastic. And it's not because I my, my ego needs to have uh, more and more listeners. It's that people are finding this helpful. And uh, that is the reason that I keep doing it. I keep taking time to do it. So It means a lot to me that you would listen. Um, to that end, if you do like it, go over to um, iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts and uh, write a review, give a like, give a thumbs up, give a star, whatever it is on that format. And um, uh, all that does is it helps others to find it. It It helps the word get out, helps us to climb the charts. I think that's a saying for this kind of podcast, but it, uh, it, it, it brings it to the attention of more folks. And more listeners probably means more questions. More questions mean more episodes. So thank you all uh, uh, for listening. Um, now, if you don't like it, you don't have to write anything. You can keep your opinion to yourself. But if you have constructive criticism, shoot me an email over at fearcastpodcast.com. And to that end, I've been sitting here before this episode thinking, you know what I ought to do? Put out a survey uh, to everybody to see what we can do better. How can I improve this? What can I do to make it just that much better? And um ultimately, that's going to be uh, dependent upon what you the listeners would think would make it better. And, uh, and, and we will see. So um, that is um, me thinking or speaking just um, off the top of my head, and we'll see how it goes. So in the future uh, episodes, um, keep an ear out, there might be a survey. So did anybody go to the IOCDF conference this past week, or two weeks ago, I don't know what it was. Can we just talk about how, side note, can we just talk about how all weeks, all days just seem to merge into one and a week ago could have been a month ago and a month ago might as well have been yesterday. It's uh, the pandemic is throwing everything off. I don't even know what day it is today. It's crazy. I'm sure you guys are experiencing the same. Anyways, so the conference happened uh, recently, and um, I thought it was really, really good. For those of you who um, are are unaware, the IOCDF is the International OCD Foundation, and they are... I guess, a, a, a large nonprofit body that uh, that helps information or spread information about um, OCD and uh, anxiety disorders. Um, so they did a conference. They do a conference once a year. This year it was canceled because of the plague. And uh, we all met online. And by the way, I'm going to say the online uh, the online format was actually really, really good. There's something it's missing, certainly, about not seeing people in person, not being able to go up and ask questions to presenters between uh, between talks or, you know, grab a drink with them afterwards and ask them questions about whatever. There, certainly, that's missing. But to be able to have it in the convenience of your house, to be able to have it streamed all over the world so more people can uh, uh, experience uh, the the. Uh, the The seminars and the uh, the information um, I, I think is actually really good. So I'm in favor of future um, uh, future conferences being put on the interwebs. Um, they pro- I'm I'm anticipating I'm going to call it now. There's going to be a hybrid model they're going to be putting together for next year. But um, you heard it here first. Um, what I think was my big takeaway. If you did not make it, or if you did make it. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. But I think my big takeaway was the amount of talk there was about the inhibitory learning model. So the inhibitory learning model is something that I actually did a podcast on way back in the day. So if you want to go back into the files, you can listen to episode nine. It's on the inhibitory learning model. Basically what it is, it's a it's a model that explains how and why ERP works, um, in in one way you can explain it as it's what we're it's how we're learning what is safe it's how we can relearn what is safe and i put safe in quotes you can't see me do that but it's in quotes because as we've talked about before a lot of things are quote safe right airplane travel safe car travel safe owning a dog safe right for the most part they're incredibly safe but things can go really bad right but we still call them safe so what we are doing through the inhibitory learning model is trying to defy our feared expectations so what our brain tells us is going to happen if we do x um and for those of us with anxiety our brain says oh if i do this thing something awful will happen the worst case scenario will happen so we are we are one, we're we're trying to defy that expectation because we kind of say, if that thought is true and is going to happen, I I can't handle it. I can't deal with that outcome. So I or, or I can't deal with the momentary experience of discomfort. So I must do Y to make sure that X doesn't happen, right? So what we're learning is, is that we can actually survive that. And we can ex- survive that feeling and that discomfort and doubt and uncertainty for an extended period of time. So that's part of defying our expectation. We say, well, I you know, I can only handle this for 10 minutes before I do a compulsion. Great, let's do it for 11 minutes. And after 11 minutes, we go, all right, well, what did you learn about that? What did you learn about yourself, your ability to tolerate that, that discomfort? What was surprising about your ability to handle it? What was surprising about the fact that either nothing happened or what you expected to happen didn't happen the way that you thought it was going to happen? And through all of this discussion and, and a lot more, I'm doing a summary here. Through all of this, we are slowly learning that we can handle it. So I anticipate that we're going to be hearing much more about this in the next uh, b- bunch of years. And uh, in the upcoming years, there'll be more incorporation of these concepts or these ideas and in the, in the, in a subtle shift in the way that we're talking about treatment and the way that we are moving through therapy. One of the biggest takeaways uh, from that is a a. a a shift away from doing a traditional hierarchical um, uh, exposure model, um, meaning that we, we create, you've heard me talk about hierarchies before, you basically create this big list from least anxiety provoking to most on a scale of once to 10 or zero to 100, however you do it. And we start with the easiest one. And we do that through exposure. And then we wait for habituation. And then we move on to the next one higher. And then we do that till habituation, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, onward towards the end. The shift then is, is going to be less of that and more of a shift into doing things at random. And I, I actually really like this idea because life comes at us at random. It's not like things that make us anxious uh, or more anxious come to us at the end of the month rather than at the fr- front of the month or the, the, the top of the month. Um, and, and then, then therefore or, And then progressively in that stepwise manner. But instead, they come to us at random. So let's treat exposures at random. And some days, we're going to do exposures that are going to be tough. They're going to be, you know, your tens, right? And then the next day, you're going to do them, and they're going to be your twos. And you're going to say, these are incredibly easy. We're going to say, right. But what we're learning is to handle the moment of anxiety, that, that moment of, of worry and uncertainty. Not to say, can I practice and buckle down for this one thing? But to say, it's this, I don't know what's coming but I'm going to learn that I can handle it. So here's what I would also love to hear. What were your takeaways? If there were some things or some talks or some information that you heard at the conference that, you, that blew your mind or you thought was fascinating, um, I'd love to hear about it. If you'd love to... If you'd like, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and send me a message through the ask a question link. So I know it's not a question, it's more of a comment, but uh, send me a message there. I'd love to hear what your takeaways were from the conference, what you thought was great. Um, Maybe what you thought was weird, too. I don't know. But if you have feedback about it, or if you uh, had some insights from it, share them, and I will put them on a future episode. But until then, on to our questions for this week. All right. So this first question comes from Charles. Charles says, Hey, Kevin, I love the podcast. And it's been helpful for my recovery. I'm doing ERP therapy for my OCD parentheses. They say HOCD slash SO which is sexual orientation OCD um, by exposing myself to certain images. I have done this for quite some time now. However, now I've developed a new symptom where I get a very tight tension headache that springs up immediately upon seeing a trigger. Internally, I've accepted the thoughts and feel I'm somewhat bored after a while, but the painful headaches continue despite this, so I'm not sure if I should stop the ERP or not. Is this a reaction to cutting out mental compulsions or some kind of subconscious block trauma that's not getting through? It goes on to say, I'm on an SSRI now, and I'm not sure if that's what's caused this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, as I've not heard of many people dealing with this symptom. And I'm unsure if continuous exposures will help. I'm wondering if I should try some other therapies for emotional regulation in addition to ERP. Lastly, he says, the exposures have become compulsions to check at this point to see if the headache tension symptom is gone. Then he says, thanks for your help all right charles this is actually a really good question i really like this one because a lot of folks do have some of those questions related to should i keep doing my exposure should i keep doing this even though i'm getting this funky weird side effect or because you know some people will say i'm getting headaches or some people will say i'm I'm experiencing some other maybe physiological side effect from doing their treatment now first and foremost i want to say is that um If you've never talked to a doctor or your doctor about these headaches, my encouragement will be talk to your doctor. The first thing we want to do in situations like this is to rule out any sort of physiological uh, uh, or or underlying medical condition that could be explaining some of these uh, uh, physiological symptoms, these problems, right? So go see a doctor. That said, if you have gone to see a doctor and your doctor says everything's fine, they've done tests or that they felt were reasonable and they've said everything's fine, then great. Then ignore that. Then we're going to move forward with it as if it is simply anxiety. So we ought to remember that our brain and our body are connected. It's that we sometimes feel the physiological symptoms and sensations related to anxiety. Sometimes we get stomach aches when we're anxious. We have then GI issues. We can have constipation or diarrhea. We can have jaw tension. We can have headaches. We can have other muscular tension around our body. Additionally, some people will even feel physical sensation as a result of their compulsion, meaning like um, so sometimes when people are doing repeated compulsive acts or contorting their body in, in, in a certain way or even holding their body in a certain way to prevent something from happening, this is kind of a magical thinking sort of approach. When people do this, people can start to feel physical tension, tightness, discomfort, uh, uh, as a result of their compulsions, and certainly as a result of the anxiety itself. So, with that being said, headaches are not uncommon as part of feeling anxious. And you're feeling incredibly anxious when you are doing these exposures, which is the purpose of them, Right. Now, before I give you my advice, I would also encourage you to talk with your therapist about this. So the therapist that is guiding you through the ERP, chat with him or her about this to uh, check to see if if what I'm about to say is also going to be in line with what they are doing. It's possible that, that they would tell you to stop. It's possible they're going to tell you to keep going. I don't know. All I can know is what you wrote to me and the stuff that I'm guessing or making up. I don't know. So. Um, my position is this, don't stop doing the ERP. Instead, keep, keep going. Keep going, especially for, uh, for the primary obsession of HOCD. Keep doing those exposures as your clinician is guiding you. However, also accept that the headaches are going to be part of the exposure. So we can accept that, yeah, while it's not very fun, it's part of it. So yes, while the headaches are going to be annoying and they're going to be unpleasant, you can bring them all together and say, "Okay, here's what I know about my anxiety. When I experience this thought, it I feel my physical sensations of anxiety, feel my heart racing and I feel sweaty and I feel that that uh, butterfly uncomfortable feeling in my gut and I might feel this headache afterwards, but you know what? I can deal with that. I can tolerate that. And that anxiety is never going to kill me. It's just going to kind of suck for a little bit, and then I'm going to be able to get back to my life. So that's certainly one approach. But that last sentence you put in your question is actually really important, isn't it? Ultimately, you've turned this into a secondary obsession and using your headaches as compulsion. So, in other words, in some cases, it sounds like the obsession is no longer about what it was. It's it's now no longer the, the obsession. Instead, the ERP is now becoming a compulsion. You are doing exposures to check to see whether or not this feeling is there. So, you're checking, as you said. But why are you checking for it? What is the problem with the headache? Now, this is where it starts to shift into more of a somatic obsession. It sounds like you are obsessing now more about the presence and the intensity, and perhaps the longevity of a headache. Because my main question to you is: Well, what's so bad about the headaches? Is it that they're always going to be there? Meaning that you're afraid they're always going to be there? Is it that they interfere with your other OCD work and that you'll never get rid of that one because you're constantly focused on the headache? Is it that your life will always be distracting because of the headaches? So. I don't know, but that would be something to really consider about, well, what is so bad that you are doing these exposures now just to see if you're going to get this headache? So to that end, I would encourage you to see this as an opportunity to script, meaning to write out this feared story and to start tolerating the idea that maybe these headaches are never going to go away. And these headaches are a tremendous problem for the rest of your life, and it's going to interfere with everything, right? It sounds catastrophic. Because it kind of is, right? But again, what's the problem with these? You're just getting a headache. I'll also say, in terms of resisting doing ERP or stopping ERP, so here's a bit of a nuanced view to what I'd previously said about um, stopping or continuing with uh, your EP, your ERP for your HSCD. I'll say, as... Guided and as directed by your clinician, continue to do ERP for your primary obsession, but resist doing the ERP so that you get in, you get these headaches. Meaning, if you are doing the exposure in order to get the headache or or in order to check, that's a problem. So said again, if you feel the urge to do a headache check exp- exposure, resist that and then accept. Because you're not doing an exposure, that you may never get over your other obsession, right? Because in that moment, you're holding back on doing the exposure. So you're using this as more of a mindful acceptance. It is also a bit of a natural exposure. You have a desire and urge to do this thing, to check for this other exposure. But this other one seems to be uh, at risk, and that's okay. Similarly, if you get a headache because of your other exposures, accept that they are just simply part of your process, and that they may never go away, and that your life is screwed, right? So, this is a bit of a a, a mucky, murky mess. But, remember, the point isn't to be checking that everything is going to be okay, or that your life is screwed. The point is, can I live my life as I so choose? Do you want to do the checking exposure? Meaning, do you want in your life, if all things were were equal and OCD were gone, would you love to spend your time doing exposures to whatever to make sure that you do or don't have a headache? I can imagine you don't, but you also recognize that headaches are natural biological things, right? You and I are going to get them. It's kind of life. Sucks, but it's part of life. So instead of continuing on to go down that path of checking to make sure the headaches are there or are not there, except that you're going to get them, but resisting the urge. So in terms of tolerating feelings and can you tolerate it, it's, well, can I tolerate not giving into the urge to check whether or not I I continue to get those headaches? And what will that mean for you? What will that signify for you to not check? What is a potential reality that now you're going to have to tolerate if that were to come true? And that will be something to think about or something to tolerate and to work on with your other therapist. So, more stuff to think about, Charles, but thank you so much for that question, and good luck. All right, so this next question comes from Kavya. They say... I'm hyper-aware of clothes touching my skin, especially the inner garments that make me feel so uncomfortable because it feels so real that discomfort is real, and it's hard to believe that it's just an obsession. I keep looking for larger sizes that try to make me feel more comfortable. Could you just help me if this is real or is a hyper-awareness OCD? They also go on to say, I am diagnosed with OCD for other symptoms as well, but this symptom is somewhat confusing. All right, Kavya, Thank you so much for that question. Um, so this is a this is a really good one. So to kind of continue on with the theme of somatic obsessions, we're going to talk about this. So it, it could certainly be OCD, but I'll say it, it depends on the problem associated with it. So you mentioned that it feels real, but I'll, I'll say this is that it is real. You are wearing something, but but what's the problem? That it'll last forever that'll continually distract you, that it just constantly feels uncomfortable? So the problem is, is that it could certainly be one or both things. So there could be an OCD component to it, meaning OCD generally has this feared story attached to it. It has this cognitive component where there's this thing your brain's telling you about what may happen If this is true, or if this other thing doesn't happen, and then the compulsion is something you do to try to get rid of it or to try to alleviate yourself or to try to make sure that that thing is never going to happen. So it could certainly be that, but you don't really allude to a feared story in there. What it could also be is something called sensory processing disorder, which is something which is abbreviated as, as SPD. So, in a moment here, I just want to explain what sensory processing disorder is, and I'll go a, a little bit long into that since I've never really talked about this here on the podcast, but it could be OCD and it could be sensory processing disorder, but the treatment for both of them is going to be very, very similar, but this you know, obviously some subtle differences. So, while the treatment is going to be the same, they will be slightly different. At the bottom line, I would say for both of them, it's going to come down to... Tolerating that feeling of discomfort and spending less time on the obsession itself. So spending less time ruminating about how it feels, less time hyper focusing on it, less uh, percentage of your day trying to figure out how to make that feeling go away or how to not feel that feeling. All right, so with all that said, what is sensory processing disorder? Well, so sensory processing disorder is not a diagnosis in and of itself. Oftentimes, this disorder is going to be diagnosed by an occupational therapist, um, and very often with, um, within the early intervention system with children with autism or children who are on the uh, spectrum. Now, this is not to say that someone who has sensor processing disorder also has autism. Uh, they can happen separately, but there is a correlation between the two and, and very often a connection between the two. So this is not me also saying that you have autism or also diagnosing you with anything, really, but just more stuff to think about. All right. So with all that said, I suppose I didn't even say what SPD actually is. So SPD, it, 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 what it does is it affects the way that the brain takes in Organizes and uses sensory information. So it takes this the 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 sensorial sensory information from all around us, um, pulls it into our body through our our, our nerves and our senses, um, and our brain evaluates that information, considers its intensity, its purpose, and kind of it, it, and then the appropriate response. So sometimes that process is overvalued, and sometimes it is slow or under-responsive to that information. Um, A couple of the articles that I read about this, to kind of bring me back up to speed with this, um, noted that a lot of folks with sensory processing disorder are sometimes considered uncoordinated. They tend to run into things, they tend to have trouble identifying where their body is in space, hence they keep bumping into stuff. Um, and, And what this ultimately does is it speaks to their poor processing of the information coming from their 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 nerves, their muscles, um, it, how, and then how the brain is then processing that information. So it's either processing it incorrectly, it's processing it too slowly, and it's trying to put the Jenga pieces together in a way, and it's just not doing it quite well. Now, SPD can affect just one sense. It can also affect multiple senses but there can be kind of an an over or under reactive tendency or a quality to it so some people will just perceive music as just constantly being too loud it can feel just grating on them um as perhaps you've noticed, is that clothing can feel r- way too tight and restricting. It can feel really scratchy and really uncomfortable. Um, some folks will find clothing feeling way too loose or, or really picky about exactly how clothes should fit. Um, some folks will also describe lights just being too bright or being way too sensitive or being really sensitive to light, either too bright or too dark, right? So some other ways that people describe it is that um, they said people would, would, will, people who have SPD will describe just feeling assaulted or attacked or invaded everyday experiences they've described hair brushing being painful right the feeling of the little bristles on your scalp or kind of the, the pulling of your hair can feel excruciating strong odors can be distracting or even physically uncomfortable sticky feelings on one's skin can feel incredibly distracting or 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 again just um in, 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 again i'll use it again painful for some folks, they'll refuse to or will, will be highly resistant to wearing shoes, shorts, ties, etc. So now with all this that I've described, I should also say that Having sensory processing disorder is not the same as just simply being hypersensitive. There are a lot of people who are sensitive to different sights, sounds, smells. The difference is that the there must be an interference with one's functioning. It sounds like if this were if, if this were you, it, it is interfering with some of your functioning. It sounds like you are spending a lot of time thinking about your clothing. Perhaps you've made significant changes to your wardrobe, perhaps you've thrown clothes out, perhaps you've had to then frantically buy something just to feel comfortable and right within your own skin again. So it's very possible that some of the stuff you're describing will will fit this description of a sensory processing disorder. Now, if you do have a therapist, I would encourage you to talk to him or her about these symptoms and about whether or not this is something that we should be considering as Strictly something related to your OCD, as you've said you've been diagnosed with it, or if perhaps it is also an entirely separate thing that doesn't quite have that feared story attached to it, but is this incredible discomfort. If you are also concerned about this, and if your OCD therapist doesn't quite have an answer for it, and they and they see it uh, as a reasonable referral, you could contact a occupational therapist, and you can do some Google searching to try to find that. But contact an occupational therapist to chat with him or her about this. I bet they will have plenty of information for you. All right. So as with everything, why even ask this question if you don't if you don't want the answer on what you can do with it, right? So the treatment of this, what do you do? So I'll say this. I've had some experience working with this um, as with most therapists uh, once you s- to get started in therapy land you usually have to do at some point in your tenure you're going to be doing um, some early intervention of some children's work with autism um, I would say gosh like 90% of the therapists I know at some point did work with children with autism um, and you will see in working with those those children that uh, you'll be working alongside occupational therapists and oftentimes working with this but again I wanted to bring my myself up to speed. I had my hunches on what I would say and how this uh, or your particular situation can be treated. But oddly enough, treatment information on this is really hard to find. For OCD treatment, you can pretty much easily find a, a lot of information on this. But uh, just through some Google searching, I was having some trouble finding articles directly describing what treatment would be for this. That being said, I found one website and I found this quote really interesting. So this article was um, mainly focused for uh, work with children, but let's talk about it. I'll read this quote and then we're going to see what it sounds like. So it says, one popular approach for treatment is called sensory integration therapy, SI. Sensory integration uses fun activities in a controlled, stimulating environment. This way, SPD patients can experience stimuli without feeling overwhelmed. So I'll be honest, this sounds a lot like ERP to me. Maybe not quite the fun part. I like to do fun exposures, but it's approaching the thing that they are having trouble with or the thing they're having discomfort with in a somewhat controlled environment without becoming incredibly overwhelmed. So without you know breaking their brain, becoming too uh, stressed out by it. So with trying to experience that stimuli in a calm, dispassionate, confident perspective. Now, Isn't that what we've been talking about with exposure and response prevention, right? Whatever we're afraid of, if it's having, quote, gay thoughts or looking at images of women or of men or of seeing dogs or of seeing needles, right? It is to see and experience that stimuli without feeling overwhelmed. And the way that this is going to be done oftentimes with children is going to be a slow, steady introduction of that stimuli into their life, and in a way that is functional for them, in the way that they would typically live their life, right? What we've been talking about for our exposures is not trying to be crazy, right? Is not trying to do, is not trying to be, you know, an, an anxious or a, a anxiety superhero, right? Where you can do crazy things that sometimes you see um, maybe some OCD therapists doing, but instead to go and live your life, right? It's kind of like fear of heights is a fear of heights, right? It doesn't really interfere with the majority, of, the majority of us. It doesn't get in the way of our life. But if you're a lineman, meaning someone who works on uh, you know, a, a, a electric poles and um, telephone wires, well, if you're afraid of heights, that's going to be a problem for your life. Right, if you are an avid skydiver or if you um, are really into rock climbing, well, a fear of heights is now going to be getting in the way of your life. So, trying to find a way that you can progressively expose yourself to that um, that that experience while tolerating it is going to be incredibly important. I do stand by my questions of well, what is so bad about that feeling, right? What is so bad about clothes feeling too tight? Or was so bad about clothes touching your skin? Is it that it's too tight? It's too scratchy? It's too, you simply say it's uncomfortable. But if you were working with me, I would be working on helping you to tolerate small and increasing amounts of discomfort. So we'd find, we'd make, so to go back to the traditional hierarchy, we'd make a list of things that would be uncomfortable for you to wear. So the traditional approach would be, Put a list of 10 things together that would be uncomfortable. We'd start with the easiest one. We'd wear that for a week. Next week, we'd wear the next one up. Next week, next one up, etc. Onward towards the 10th. From From a learning inhibitory model, or inhibitory learning model rather, You'd make, still make the hierarchy, but instead you'd be approaching it from a random perspective. So we'd roll the dice and we would see, well, maybe today's going to be your eight. So this week it's eight, and that might be really uncomfortable. And in the process, learning different techniques to tolerate the thought, to redirect your attention away from the obsessional nature of, of thinking about the feeling and trying to th- think about how terrible it is and how distracting that is, but instead to redirect you back to your life and what it is that you'd want to do. And then the following week, we'd roll the dice again, and it might be a two. And you might say, this is great. I'm doing this. But remember, in comparison to the eight, the two is difficult. And if we started from one, you'd be looking at two going, oh, my God, I've got two coming. But so you can see the advantage of perhaps jumping around and doing it at random. Doing that eight, it will be tough. But then in comparison, your two is that much easier. Anyways, again, this is more of how I think um, OCD land is going to be progressing in terms of talking about treatment both i will say are valid that was one of the another takeaway from the icdf is that both of these approaches the traditional hierarchical model and the inhibitory learning model both valid we will see as we progress and as people talk and as the smarty smarts uh, make the decisions for the rest of us they will tell us that we've been all monsters and doing things wrong with our hierarchical model and we've been screwing people up for years I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see. Anyways, caveat, I hope this helps. I hope this gives you more of something to think about as you progress through treatment um, and as more of stuff to chat about with your therapist. So give it a try. Give it some thought. And, uh, and if you do make some progress on this or, or do decide to take one approach or the other, shoot me an email, shoot me a follow-up email. Let me know how it goes, what has been working for you, what has not been working for you, and perhaps we'll do a follow-up episode on your progress. So thank you again for the email. All right, so this last question comes from IDK. So I don't know but IDK. Anyways, they say, hi, thanks for taking the time to read this. I was wondering if you could help me with the idea of telling others and the people closest to me that I have OCD. I'm not the most open person so the idea of talking to others about this is challenging, but especially now during COVID, I feel more alone than ever. So, how do I go about telling others what I've been going through? And most important, I guess, how do I know I'm ready I'm afraid it will blow up in my face, and once it's said, I can't take it back. So I want to make sure I do it right. Thanks again for your time. All right, IDK, this is a this is a really good question. And I, I'm telling you, I, I hear this question all the time. I think the majority of therapists hear this all the time. It's how do I kind of out myself as someone who has OCD? Now, I use that term um, tongue-in-cheek, certainly, but it also can feel like you're outing yourself. Uh, the, the term, you know, outing yourself coming from the LGBT community and in terms of a, a publicly acknowledging one's sexuality, it can feel almost as personal, right? That it's this aspect of who, y- it feels like the, this huge component of who you are that you've been hiding because you've been, quote, trying to be normal, I suppose, or trying to, quote, not look crazy or like whatever it is that our brain tells us is the thing that's the, the, the obstacle in the way. And it sounds like some of those thoughts are also getting in the way here. You've kind of talked about how you're afraid that it's going to blow up in your face once you say that you can't take it back. So IDK, um, I'll I'll also refer you back to episode six. I'm doing a lot of like callbacks to really early episodes. So in episode six, I, I essentially talk about this. How can you tell other people about your diagnosis, your OCD? and and it's it's a tough, tough question, and there is no r- perfect or right or wrong way to do it, but it's the way that you do it. That is the way that it is to be done. But there are a couple different f- factors that you can think about. One of the first things that I like to think about in this is that is who do you want to tell? Who are going to be the people that you f- that you find to be safe and that are going to be the the I think I refer to them as the soft places to land? These are the people who love you the most and who understand you, who are in your corner, who are cheering for you. It's just in life, identifying those people. And if these people that you're wanting to tell here, you just already from the, from the get-go feel like they're going to be um, judgmental, they're not going to understand, they're not going to want to understand, or they're going to find this and, and use this perhaps as a, a, a way to ridicule or to hurt you, then those people are not safe. So holding that information back from them at this time might be a decent idea. So you want to think about what your intentions are and what is it that you're trying to get out of this. Hopefully, it is purely for connection, for transparency, for intimacy, in other words, being close to people, being uh, transparent with your family and friends and loved ones to let them into your world, right? So often people put others at a distance because they don't want to be seen. It's the fear of vulnerability. We feel like if we are vulnerable, we are open to attack and that we are potentially going to crumble under that attack. So we hold people away, but then we don't let people close to us and don't get let people love on us as perhaps they might want to, as perhaps it would be beneficial for both of us in this relationship. So if it's to let other people in, great. And again, think about who those people are. If there are people out there that you're thinking that don't understand OCD, who don't get it, who don't want to get it, or are mental health deniers, not those people. Avoid those people for right now. Another thing to think about in this is how much do you want to tell? Remember, this is your story. You get to tell whatever information you want to give. They don't know what's going on in your head. So whatever you tell them is what they're going to know. So we can simply start shallow, meaning the least bit of information to get them on board. You could say, you know what? I've been experiencing a lot of anxiety lately, period. And that's all they need to know sometimes. And they, they get a little bit closer to you. They know a little bit about what you're going through. And if they then... Ask questions. Ask follow up questions. You can say, you know what? I'm not quite ready to go into that just yet. I just want to let you know I've been struggling with something, and 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 ask that they trust that you'll give more information in the future as needed, and when you're ready. You can go one step further. You can say, you know what? I've been experiencing a lot of anx- a lot of anxiety, and in fact, I've been struggling with OCD. Period. You don't need to give any more information now. They are going to be uh, probably confused as to what's happening. They might be thinking that you're washing your hands a lot or say, but your room is so clean or whatever Whatever people think, right? But a lot of times, people will be afraid that if they share every bit of information of their obsession, that they're going to get all this judgment, all this um, blowback, and it's going to go terrible, right? And I suppose to that point, there are people who are going to have trouble understanding some of the subtypes of OCD we've been talking about here. Sometimes, POCD, sometimes HOCD, sometimes scrupulosity, um, and, you know, a number of other obsessions as well, they can be seen as, they they can kind of draw like a second glance, they can draw a little bit of judgment from other people who just don't quite know what that means, what it looks like, and it can be scary to some people if they don't understand. So, you, again, can can feel that out. You can be cautious about how much you want to share, who you want to share that with. Now, if they simply don't understand OCD and you just want to say, here's here's what OCD is, I always encourage people to ask others, well, what is your understanding of OCD? What do you think it is? And they'll say something to the effect of like, oh, it's people who wash their hands a lot, right? Something like that. And you say, well, why do they wash their hands? And they say, well, they feel dirty. And you can say, are they dirty? And they'll say, No, but they think they are. Right. They think something that isn't quite accurate, and they do something because of that thought. Right. So, I experience some of that stuff too. I sometimes get a thought that doesn't make sense to me even sometimes, and ultimately I know isn't true, but I feel like I have to do something to it, and I feel like I have to do something in response to it. So, I do X, or I do something. You can just even say something. Oftentimes, given that frame of what OCD is, people will kind of get on board. They'll kind of understand. And even with the um, most abstract things, they can kind of get that idea. Now, IDK, with all of that said, it's scary to think that you're going to out yourself with this. And to to face that possibility that it could blow up in your face once you've said it, and that you're right, you can't take it back once you've said it, you can't unsay it. And that's frightening. So, if if you do put this off for a little bit, I completely understand. But I can't think of any circumstances in which I've worked with someone and, and and we have worked on sharing their OCD with someone they love. And it then had it backfire, then had it blow up so terribly that it was not worth it. So, of course, while there's the possibility it could blow up in your face, if you're sharing it with people who love you, who care for you, who want the best for you, who are in your corner, as it were, it's it, it, it's unlikely that it's going to blow up. But that's where it comes down to taking that risk, right? It's we take risks for something that are better, right? It's sacrifice. We sacrifice our own personal discomfort for something better, or our own personal comfort, rather, for something better better than comfort? What could be better than just feeling comfortable? Perhaps feeling close to people, perhaps, perhaps being honest with people, right? And, and keeping your eyes on that and focusing on that can be helpful. So, IDK, I hope this really helps. I hope this gives you some way to think about it, some way to move forward with it. Check out that episode. Again, that's episode six. It's called We Should Talk About OCD. Um, Check out that episode and see how that resonates with you. See if it gives you something to think about. Um, And uh, for all other listeners, if you are considering telling somebody and you or if you did tell somebody, you did tell a loved one about it, how did you do it? What worked for you? What did not work for you? That would be delightful for me to do a whole episode on people's feedback on how you told loved ones, family members, etc. about your OCD, how it went what you would have done differently, and perhaps what advice you'd have to folks like IDK, who would like to know how to do this in the best possible way. So, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, shoot me a message there, and and I'll I'll try to compile those into a whole episode if I get enough of these. Shoot, if I even get one, I'll share it. So, all right, everybody. IDK, thank you so much for the question. Good luck. All right, everybody, we made it through this episode of the FearCast. Thank you so much for making it through it. Again, everybody, if you like the show, if you think it's helpful for you, if, you, if there is something meaningful to it for you, um, shoot me a message. Go over to iTunes. Go over wherever you get your podcasts. And give me a like. Give me a review. Give the show a review, rather. Um, and uh, again, it, it only helps people find it and, and uh, gets gets the word out a little bit more. Um, if you just before a survey comes out, if you think there's something that the show could be doing better, so more of something, less of something else, something else entirely that I haven't even thought of, message me over at Fearcast Podcast. I always want some ideas on how we can make this show better. All right. Um, Please remember everybody that this uh, FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you need help in your own progress, go to FearCastPodcast.com and there'll be a find help link there. There'll be some information uh, that hopefully will help point you in the right direction. All right. Until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.